One of my favorite things to do as a parent is to change the endings of stories midway through. Usually, it goes something like this, and then a giant monster came out of the ground and ate everyone. The end. My kids will often object, Dad, I mean, they're used to me at this point. We know that's not the end of the story. I think maybe one of my favorites is the Gruffalo. Some of you will know that one. And I'm like, it turns out the mouse wasn't that smart, and the Gruffalo, whom he insulted, ate him. You know, fairy tales and stories in general used to have a little bit more bite to them back in the day. I mean, you might call it morbid, but I thought it really, they really had a way of getting their point across. You know, the boy who cried wolf doesn't live happily ever after having learned his lesson. He ends up dead. Right? Just hits a little harder. Like, if you lie, you die. Warnings embedded in these stories for us to heed. I think one of my favorites is Little Red Riding Hood. Y'all remember that one? Grandma gets Little Red Riding Hood. You guessed it. A riding hood that's red and velvet. Grandma then gets sick, and so mom sends her with a basket full of goodies to grandma's house. She meets a creature along the way who encourages her to gather some flowers, and so she delays and gathers flowers, while said creature, the wolf, who didn't seem so bad to her, goes ahead of her to grandma's house. He's working out a plan that he has orchestrated for himself. He's planning on eating like a king. So he gets to grandma's house and eats grandma. Then he puts on grandma's clothes, gets in grandma's bed, and waits on dessert. Little Red. You know how the story goes. Uh, Red shows up, and there are those famous lines that all of us know. Oh, grandma, what big ears you have. All the better to hear you with, my dear. Oh, grandma, what big eyes you have all the better to see you with. Oh, Grandma, what big teeth you have, all the better to eat you with. And then the wolf swallows red whole. And I'm not sure if that's where it ends. I think that's where it should end, obviously. You know, there's some weird version where like a hunter comes along and cuts open the wolf's stomach while he's asleep. I don't know what kind of sedation he has, but he pulls Grandma and Red alive out of the wolf and I'm like, that's just totally not realistic, and it helps us to miss the point of the warning here, which is, don't get distracted by strangers on your way to grandma's house, A, and B, looks can be deceiving. Don't be deceived when a wolf is wearing someone else's clothing. And that's Jesus' point here is, he gets ready to conclude the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 15 through 23. He is warning his listeners, do not be deceived. Beware of false teachers and false discipleship. Beware of false teachers. They are wolves who wear sheep's clothing. You can see your outline there on your insert. Uh, I've, I've tried to make it clear. We're only dealing with the bolded parts. Jesus concludes this sermon. Verse 12 is the conclusion of the body where he has exegeted the law for us. And then he's calling us to make a decision here in these last few verses from verse 13 down to verse 27. And the decision he wants us to make is for him. He's calling us to submit ourselves to his lordship, to trust in him for salvation, and to obey his voice in regards to our living. Jesus calls, him to, calls us to himself and to holiness. That's his goal. And he, he calls us to himself with these four pictures. You can see there are two trees, which we're going to get to this week. Last week we looked at two ways, the broad and the narrow. Then there's two trees, two confessions, and two houses. Jesus wants us to choose him rather than the ways of the world. He wants us to choose heaven rather than hell. With that in mind, uh, let's pray together this morning, and then we will begin our time together. Heavenly Father, you have led us to singing of the cross, the cross where we fling down all of our burdens and see them vanish.
where our mountains of guilt are leveled to a plain, where our sins disappear as they are dealt with in Christ. Indeed, our sins are more in number than the grains of fine sand scattered about the earth. And yet, in your mercy, the blood of Christ covers them all. There is power in the blood of Calvary to destroy more sins that can be counted. Lord, we thank you for this great and wonderful truth. Pray that you would make us those poor in spirit, those meek ones who inherit the kingdom of heaven. Not because we are so great, but because we have trusted it in the blood of the Lamb who was crucified for us. We thank you that the Lamb who was slain on Calvary's hill rose again from the dead as a lion, who indeed will rightly order everything when he returns to crush the head of the serpent and to make all things new as he roars in victory over sin and death, finally. Lord, what good news it is that Jesus came, died, rose again, and is returning. Father, help us to heed his voice this morning, we pray, and it's in his name. Amen. Matthew sets out to write this gospel so that we might believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah King. Indeed, Matthew intends for us to understand that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so he begins his gospel by laying out for us Jesus' credentials as king. Jesus has the right pedigree. He fulfills the right prophecies. And he has the right endorsements. God the Father says at his baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's really the first three, four chapters of Matthew. Then he continues his argument after showing us Jesus' credentials by showing us Jesus' power. In chapters 5 through 9, chapters 8 and 9, Jesus exercises his rule over demons, disease, and even death. We see that he rules the world. And here where we are in chapters 5 through 7, we are brought into contact with the power of Jesus' words. He teaches, you see it there in verse 29, as one who has authority, God-like authority. He doesn't quote other rabbis when he teaches, which was the pattern of those before him. No, no, he speaks as if he is God himself. That is the level of authority that his words carry. He's calling for obedience. And as we've walked through this sermon, we have said, as I've already said once again this morning, trying to get you to pass the Sunday school test next week, uh, he does two things in this sermon, two goals. He wants to call us to himself in dependent faith and to holy living, that we would obey his voice. Remember, the whole body of the sermon, the whole thing is built around this one big question, who gets into the kingdom of heaven? Who can have eternal life? Who can be made right with God? And Jesus answers his question in part back in chapter 5. He says, well, the only people that get into the kingdom of heaven are those who have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And for all those listening, that would have meant we have no hope because the scribes and the Pharisees are the best of us. When we come through and walk through the Sermon on the Mount, we are not to get to the end of it thinking, I can do all of those things and therefore I will be righteous enough to get into the kingdom of heaven. No, we are to get to his summation, his conclusion in verse 12, where he says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do to them also, for this is the law and the prophets, and we are to be crushed. We're to go, I cannot be saved. I am not righteous. I cannot get into the kingdom of heaven. I have no hope. And we're to recognize what Jesus said to us in his introduction. That key verse we've said in verse 3 back in chapter 5 where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. But to recognize we can't save ourselves by keeping all these rules. Rather, we must trust 
in the Savior who has fulfilled the law and the prophets for us. Jesus is the King who fulfills the law and the prophets, who lives the perfect life that you and I should have lived. And indeed, he dies the death that you and I deserve to die. When Jesus goes to the cross, he goes to die not for his own sins, but for our sins, for the sins of all who have trusted in him. See, what the good news of the gospel is, is that we who repent of our sins and submit to Jesus, we are credited with his perfect righteousness. So that it's just as if we never sinned, and just as if we ever always did everything right all the time. We are declared righteous before God. That's really good news. And what Jesus is calling us to do is to take hold of that salvation by trusting in him independent faith. Jesus calls us to himself. But he doesn't call us to just give, us, give him lip service as our king and as our Lord. He calls us to live in obedience to his word. So that when he saves us out of the world, he saves us into his kingdom, and we are to live according to those kingdom precepts. We are to strive to do all those things that he's laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. To quell our anger, to love our enemies, to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect, to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are to pursue holiness. Jesus calls us to himself and to holiness. He wants us to bend the knee to him as our Lord and Savior, and he wants us to walk faithfully in light of that truth. Those who enter the kingdom by faith in Jesus continue to walk along the narrow way by faith in Jesus. Those who know King Jesus obey his voice. And that's a point that Jesus is going to press home to us this morning in verses 15 through 23. He has said, Entered by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The narrow way is the way of the cross, the way of obedience to God rather than ourselves. And Jesus gives us this warning. He's going to warn us some people are going to try and call us off of the narrow way and onto the wide path, out of life and into destruction. He says, Beware, be on guard. Be aware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus gives us this warning because it is a real and present danger in the early church. It is a real and present danger now. It has been a real and present danger throughout church history. There are false prophets, false teachers, false leaders, those who would come into the flock of God as wolves, dress themselves up like sheep to the end of leading the sheep away from the narrow way. To the end of gaining for themselves greed or some other worldly trinket. The reason they, these false teachers, dress themselves up is because that's what's most effective. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to recognize that if, if a wolf goes into a sheep pen, all the sheep see that it's a wolf and they scatter, right? And likewise, Christians are very seldom taken prisoner by explicit rejection of the gospel. Right? Those who, who claim to be following Christ, if somebody comes to them and says, hey, I know Jesus says to do A, but go ahead and, and, and do B. Right? We're, we're, we're not, I mean, sometimes people are susceptible to that, but not always. See, a far more effective tactic for Satan and for his servants is to put on the clothing of the righteous. To look like one thing on the outside, when in reality, these false teachers are something else on the inside. That should sound familiar. Jesus has talked about hypocrisy elsewhere in this sermon. You remember the watermelon illustration? Somebody made watermelon cake for me, 
Looks like a cake on the outside, delicious. You cut it open, it's terrible fruit on the inside. Disappointment. That's what's going on here. These false teachers, they're, they're dressed up. They're wolves dressed in sheep's clothing, look like sheep on the outside, big bad wolf on the inside, right? They, they look like sheep. They come to church. They pray. They know the, the Christian language. Really, they're good people, but they have some sharp teeth. All the better to eat you with. Satan loves this strategy. Paul speaks of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 12. And what am I doing? I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. Because such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is no surprise if Satan's servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Satan deceives, and he has servants in the church and among the flock with the goal of deceiving us dividing us, leading us away from Christ. Usually this is doctrinal. It's one of the primary ways. You know, false teachers say all kinds of things, but some of their favorites, three of their favorites are doctrine doesn't matter. There is no absolute truth. But they ask you to ignore that that itself is an absolute truth. It's weird. There is no absolute truth. Truth is relative. Live and let live. God won't judge you. They put on their sheep's clothing and then they ask the question of the serpent. Has God really said? Did God really say? And slowly but surely they shepherd the sheep off of the narrow way and onto the wide one. It is a real threat. Paul warns the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Or Peter, in 2 Peter 2, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. Jesus warns us to beware of false teachers. Therefore, we must judge preachers and teachers and elders and leaders. We must judge those who would lead us. Not with a sincerious judgmentalism, Jesus rules that out at the beginning of chapter 7, but with a wise and gracious judgment. We need to make sure that our leaders teach that which is consistent with the Holy Scripture. That their lives are consistent with the Scripture, with the words of Christ. We must judge preachers and leaders. But the question comes, Jesus, how? How are we to recognize false teachers? And Jesus gives us the answer in verses 16 through 20. You will recognize them by their fruits. 
Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus switches the metaphor for us. He says, false teachers are like wolves that dress in sheep's clothing. And the way you tell who a wolf is, is by what kind of fruit they bear. But he takes us into the realm of agriculture. He's making a very simple argument with this little inclusio. You can see it there. Verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 20, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus' diagnostic tool is obvious. We can discern who false teachers are by evaluating the kind of fruit that their lives produce. Good trees bear good fruit, and bad trees bear bad fruit. It's really interesting, D.A. Carson makes note of this. It says, from a distance, the little blackberries on the buckthorn, buckthorn would have been a common plant in, uh, in, among Jesus' audience, from a distance, little blackberries on the buckthorn could be mistaken for grapes, and the flowers on certain thistles might deceive one into thinking figs were growing. But no one would long be deceived. Really, it is an interesting image, right? From a distance, you might look at a plant and think there's fruit there. But if you get close enough to it, the truth will out. Likewise, when we Step one to examining the fruit of a teacher's life is proximity and time. Being close to someone, allowing time to pass, will reveal what kind of fruit they are producing. But the question comes, what does Jesus mean by fruit? What does he mean by fruit? And I think there are at least two things that Jesus means by fruit and one thing which he does not mean. First, he means that good fruit will be consistent with good conduct. That those who are bearing good fruit are living lives that are consistent with God's word. We know this from Matthew chapter 3 when John the Baptist is speaking. It says this, starting with verse 7. But when John saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Here it is. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See, good fruit is marked by repentant conduct. Those who are true teachers of God's word, when confronted with sin, will be quick to repent, to turn back to Christ. It's the fruit of repentance which is consistent with Christianity. If you ever come across a preacher or a leader who responds to correction with something along the lines of, touch not the Lord's anointed, maybe you've heard that, you need to run. You need to find another church. That person is a wolf. They would use their position, not to glorify Christ or to conform their self and their hearers to the image of Christ, but to serve themselves and to lead many away. Fruit is good conduct marked by repentance, not perfection, but a willingness to turn from sin and to pursue Christ. Secondly, it's good character. Good character, and that's not, you know, hermetically sealed off from the prior. Conduct and character usually go hand in glove. Character, those who are truly in Christ, who are true teachers of God's word, we should be able to, to look at their lives and not see, not see perfection, but to see, we're going to stick with the fruit analogy here, right? But to see the fruit of the Spirit growing in them. 
that they would be marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We would expect these things to be growing in their lives. We evaluate the fruit of leaders looking for the fruit of repentance as it shows up in good character and good conduct. Now, there is a way that churches get this really, really wrong. They'll read this passage and they'll say, we need to evaluate the fruit. And they won't look at conduct or character. Rather, they'll look at charisma and giftedness. He is a really gifted speaker. Therefore, we can't call him out on anything. He's, he's, our lead. he's a good, good speaker, so he, he must be the right guy. He's got all kinds of charisma. People really like this guy. So we know he's, that's good fruit. Put charisma over character and giftedness over godliness. What is looked for is not faithful adherence to the scriptures, but instead uh, a worldly metric that says, oh, have you seen the parking lot at First Baptist Church? Uh, this is a generic First Baptist Church. I don't think there's even one in Nellie's Ford. But, but have you seen the parking lot there? It's full every week. There are all kinds of people there. We cannot question or criticize what God is blessing. You see, the people being there, it's proof that this is a good teacher. My friends, that's foolishness. What does Jesus say? Wide is the way. Easy is the way that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Many. One of the worst metrics churches can use to evaluate their health and the health of their leadership is to simply count how many people are there. Some of the most unhealthy synagogues of Satan in our country are the most full. They have no gospel, no Christ, no Savior, nothing. No narrow road, just a wide road that leads to destruction. Those who are on it are many. Friends, we must refuse the world's metrics. We must follow Christ's metrics. Evaluate our leaders on the basis of not their charisma, but their character. Not their giftedness, but their godliness. Not how many people show up to hear them preach or lead, but by the content of what they are preaching. Jesus says, beware of false teachers. But he also wants us to beware of false discipleship, both in others and in ourselves. Because false disciples, like false teachers, will be judged. Did you see that in verse 19? Jesus says false teachers are going to be judged. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. Sounds a lot like John, doesn't it? Chapter 3, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The first doctrine to be denied in Scripture is the doctrine of judgment. God won't judge you. That's the implications of what the serpent says. Friends, a Jesus without judgment, a Jesus who does not care about the content of people's lives, does not exist. He is the king. 
and those who persist in rebellion against him, especially those who would presume to take his name upon themselves and misrepresent them, misrepresent him, are due judgment. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There are plenty of teachers, church, who are willing to tell you whatever you want to hear. There are plenty of false teachers who want you to think you don't have to do or live in accord with what God's word says, that you can just follow your heart, do however you want, and God is going to be just fine with that. Really, he's just kind of lonely anyway, really desperate for you. Non-Christian, likewise, there are many teachers, some claiming to be Christians, but many out in the world, who tell the same lie, that judgment is not coming, that there is no hell, and that it doesn't matter how you live. You come from meaninglessness, you go to meaninglessness, and your life ultimately is meaningless. Friend, that's a lie. You matter. You are made in the image of God for the purpose of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. That's what you were made for. To glorify God throughout your life, to show your love for Him by obeying His word, and to worship Him together with His people through all eternity. Made to know this God. And friend, if you don't know Jesus, you are not living according to your purpose. If you don't know Jesus, there is not blessing for you at the end of this life, but curse. There is righteous and good judgment from God that puts you under his wrath in hell forever. The good news of the gospel is that even though you have hated God, even though you have hated his rule, even though you have said, I'm the captain of my soul, God, while you have set yourself up as his enemy, has sent Christ Jesus to die Die for your sins. So that if you trust in him, you can have those sins forgiven. So that you don't get the hell that you deserve, but the heaven that you don't. That's what grace and Christianity is all about. Getting the opposite of what you deserve. You deserve God's judgment to be separated from him for all eternity. And if you trust in Christ... You get adopted into the family of God. That's incredible. The only way that's possible is because of the substitutionary death of Jesus in your place. If you want Christianity in three words, I love the way J.I. Packer said it, it's adoption through propitiation. God does not just sweep sin under the rug. He deals with it on the cross of Christ. It's how he is just and justifier. Non-Christian, do not buy the lies of the world or of those who present themselves as Christians but know not the Christ of Christianity. Repent of your sin. Put your faith in Christ. Be baptized. Follow the King because judgment comes. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's not just false teachers, it's false disciples. Look with me at verse 21. Jesus speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
What we have here is someone making an orthodox confession. Jesus is Lord, they say. And Jesus says, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Look at verse 21, the second part of it. It's very clear here. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. So the one who who says, Lord, Lord, and doesn't do the will of God, not in. It's the one who does the will of the Father who gets into heaven. Now we've got to be careful here because we can slip into all kinds of wrong-headed teaching. We're not saying we are justified by our works. That's a lie. And we're not saying, well, you just have to say, I believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. We're saying that true faith produces fruit. Right? So we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, amen and amen. And we are saying that those who come to King Jesus obey his voice. Those who enter into the kingdom of God live according to kingdom characteristics. Those who are true sheep bear good fruit. Our salvation is by faith alone. That is the root of our salvation, faith in Christ alone. And when our faith is in Christ alone for our salvation, what happens is that root produces the fruit of salvation, the fruit of holy living. This is why James says in chapter 2, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself does not have works, is dead. You see what James is saying? If you have the root of faith, you will produce the fruit of faith. But if you are just offering vacuous lip service to the Lord, I have faith, and yet you do not obey him, then your faith is faulty. We we Christians, just to be clear, we don't say like what every other world religion says. I'll obey God, I'll do these things, and therefore God will accept me. That's not what we say. We say, God has accepted me in Christ Jesus. Therefore, it is my delight to obey the king. See the difference there? It's a crucial one. One is the gospel. The other one is salvation by works. If we are of those who merely confess Jesus with our lips, but we do not do the will of the Father, but we are liars, and we will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is clear on this. Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Those who do not do what Jesus says do not know him, and they do not love him. And Jesus says, John 14, 15, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey me. The obedience is an expression of our love for God. If you do not obey God's word, if you don't want to do what Jesus says, then you, you don't know him, you don't love him. I'm not saying, I'm not calling for perfection here, neither is Jesus. He's saying the disposition of your life is towards honoring the king, honoring his word, doing his father's will. Fear so many self-professing Christians on the last day will find themselves here in verse 21. Part of the result of the revivalism of the second great awakening where emotional manipulation was rampant and there was, every church service ended with an altar call. If we can just get 
that person to walk the aisle once and to pray this prayer, they'll be right with God. Never mind what happens after that. You just need decisions. Friends, that's a lie. Sometimes I'm asked, why don't you give an altar call? My response is always, I'm not after decisions. After disciples. After people that really want to follow Jesus day after day, taking up their cross and following him. Not people who, who make a, a, have a one-time emotional experience, then think they're good with God, and then live however the hell they want and end up right here in verse 21 before the king saying, Lord, Lord, I came forward at the end of the service. And Jesus saying, depart from me, I never knew you. See that in verse 23? That's not the one who gets into the kingdom of heaven. It's the one who believes in Jesus. He calls us to himself, the poor in spirit, believes in Jesus entirely for salvation, and then follows Jesus. The one who goes through the narrow gate, comes to the Father through Jesus the Son, and then walks the narrow way day after day. This is who it is that knows God. You can have a right and orthodox confession of Christ and not know him. Do you believe? What does the fruit of your life tell you? Notice too, Jesus goes on, and this one might be more frightening. He says, false disciples can do good things. See this in verse 22? On that day, that's judgment day, many will say to me, no, the many, not a few, it's many, will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Many will come before Jesus and say, I had really spiritual experiences. I did really good things for you, Lord. Don't you know me? And he's going to say, you did good things, but you did not do the will of my Father. Depart from me. I never knew you. They've got... These false disciples, they have really flashy fruit. I mean, they're casting out demons. They're doing mighty works. And it's flashy, but it's not faithful. Jesus is not after flashy discipleship. He's after faithful discipleship. This should be a relief to you, Christian. God, God is not calling you to have extravagant spiritual experiences every day on the regular. He's not not calling you to to cast out demons and to do mighty works in his name day after day. If that happens and you're able to do that, great. Not throwing shade at that, that's cool. But what Jesus is calling you to, it's there in verse 21, do the will of my Father who is in heaven. He's after ordinary obedience. Don't be fooled by flashy discipleship. Jesus doesn't care for it. Jesus calls you to simple, ordinary, fruitful discipleship. Do those ordinary things. Belong to a church. Celebrate the sacraments with those to whom you have covenanted together. Correct sin in others. Be corrected by others. Submit to godly leadership. Sing to the Lord. Listen to his word. Love the body of Christ. Witness to the Lordship of Jesus. Bear good fruit. Come here week after week after week after week. Ordinary. But in the eyes of God, fruitful. Bear good fruit. Friends, it is very possible 
and unfortunately very regular that people get around Jesus and wrongly think that they know Jesus. Many are going to say, Lord, Lord. And many are going to hear, depart from me. I never knew you. See, they they think they know him. But Jesus says, I don't know you. It's possible to be around Jesus, but to not know Jesus. There are a number of examples of this throughout Scripture, but perhaps the brightest is that of Judas Iscariot. Remember Judas? He was around Jesus. He heard every sermon Jesus ever preached. Indeed, Judas took part in prophesying in Jesus' name, casting demons out in Jesus' name, and doing mighty works in Jesus' name. But he did not know him. And Jesus was not Judas' Lord. Judas was. John chapter 12, I'm just going to read to you. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. I love that just little footnote there. Whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for Lazarus there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with Jesus at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Reminds me of those false teachers that Peter describes. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Judas, his words about Christ were false. Makes me think of John chapter 10. See then verse 6 of chapter 12, Judas was a thief. And then we read Jesus' words in John 10. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief, reference to Satan there, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. See, like Satan, his servants come to steal, kill, and destroy. Their designs are aimed at dividing and destroying the church. Indeed, Judas aimed to destroy Christ himself. And yet, it was God's design. Through Judas' betrayal, with a kiss no less, to bring about the salvation of his people. Friends, I do want to encourage you a bit here. Despite the best attempts of wolves, The good shepherd saves his sheep. Jesus will preserve those who are his faithfully to the end. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able, no wolf is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. To do the Father's will is to do Jesus' will. It's to obey the voice of the King. Friends, Jesus will not lose any who are his. Jesus' sheep follow his voice. They listen to his voice. They do the will of his Father, and he knows them. Do you listen to the voice of Jesus? 
Or are you like Judas? Around Jesus, flashy signs of discipleship, but false. Are you bearing rotten, flashy fruit or good, faithful fruit? Friends, we are those who trust in Christ entirely for our salvation. And because we love him, we obey him. His commandments are not burdensome. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And we happily put the cross on our backs and walk the narrow way because we know our king is good and mighty. And he will see us safely home to the celestial city. Bear good fruit. But beware of false teachers and false discipleship. Every tree that does not bear fruit that is good is cut down and cast into the fire. I will declare to many of them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Bear good fruit. Follow Christ. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Let us die to ourselves, live to Christ, bearing good Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words of Jesus. They are hard words, not because they are hard to understand, but because they are hard to swallow. Pray that you would cause us to swallow them whole this morning. That we would learn to beware of false teachers out there and in here. That we would learn to beware of false disciples out there and in here. Father, do not let us go the way of Judas, the way of the wide path, close to Christ but not in Christ. Lead us to repentance for the first time, if necessary. For others of us, lead us to repentance for the one millionth time that we might enjoy sweeter and deeper communion with you because Christ has paid the debt of our sin. We rejoice, Lord. Thank you for the good news of the gospel, for saving us by your grace. Thank you for your Holy Spirit by whom we obey your will. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.